Hello and welcome to uh, the Buddhist channel. Today I'll be giving a talk on the teachings of the Buddha. The, the teachings of the Buddha are a practical teaching. Um, and it's important to understand that as Buddhists, as people who study the Dhamma of the Buddha, the, the, the most important thing for us is to live by the Dhamma, is to live our lives uh, in accordance with the Buddha's teaching. Because it's very easy for us to get carried away by our theoretical knowledge um, or our identification of ourselves as Buddhists. You know, when you call yourself a Buddhist, it's very easy to become negligent uh, and to think that somehow this is enough, that simply because you are Buddhist or because you have studied and because you have some intellectual appreciation of the Buddha, uh, of the Buddha's teaching, <coughs> that somehow you're living by the Dhamma. So today I'd like to talk about exactly what it means to live by the Dhamma. The, there's a story in the Buddha's teaching that addresses this, where the Buddha was asked by a monk, and this is in the Anguttara Nikaya, in the, the, the book of fives, or the, the, the group, group of fives, where the Buddha <coughs> laid out the, exactly what it means to, uh, to, to live by the Dhamma. So this monk came to the Buddha and asked him, what does it mean to live by the Dhamma? He had heard this, this phrase, Dhamma Vihari, one who lives by the Dhamma. Dhamma Vihari, Dhamma Vihari, one who lives by the Dhamma. You hear people saying this. Who exactly is it, uh, Venerable Sir, Lord Buddha, that lives by the Dhamma? And so the Buddha gave a, a list of teaching, a list of people, uh, five different types of people that exist in the world. And he explained that <coughs> that uh, there is only one type that is, is someone who lives by the Dhamma. So he, he gave a list of these people. The first type of person is someone who studies the teachings of the Buddha. Someone who studies the Dhamma. So we're talking about living by the Dhamma, we're talking about our relationship with the Dhamma, with the Buddha's teaching. So one type of person comes and sees the Tipitaka, you have the teachings of the Buddha, and they study them. They maybe memorize all of the teachings, uh, or at least they have familiarity with the teachings. They Maybe they memorize one part of the teachings. The whole of the Lord Buddha's teachings is, is immense. It takes up a whole bookshelf. They say there are 84,000 um, items or, or teachings uh, in, in the whole of the Buddha's teaching. We have the Vinaya, this is the, the Buddha's teaching on morality and how to perfect uh, your bodily and physical um, behavior by becoming a monk, uh, a monk or a nun, and uh, living your life perfectly. Now, um, some people will study all of this and, and will, will memorize it all. So as monks, we we even we even memorize the whole of the the list of rules. So monks have two hundred and twenty-seven rules, 
and we'll memorize them. And so, someone, someone, some people do this. In Thailand now, there is a, an activity to uh, to memorize the whole of the Vinaya Pitika, all of the Buddha's teachings on morality. Some people do this. The second group of teachings is the, the Suttanta, or the Buddha's teachings on concentration, on meditation, um, perfecting one's, uh, one's mind, so uh, purifying one's mental states, you know, either through practicing concentration where you focus the mind or practicing insight where you, you look at reality. It's the practice, the practical aspect. So once you have morality where you refrain from immoral behavior or immoral speech, then what do you do to start to develop uh, your mind, to develop your mind either in tranquility or in insight? And so you have here many of the suttas. And there are people who memorize these suttas. We, we recite, here in Sri Lanka, we recite every day. We recite the, the Mangala Sutta, Evami Suttang Ekang Samayang Bhagava, Savatiyang Viharati Jetvane Anathapindika Sahagami Atako Anyatra Devata, and so on. Where this angel comes to see the Buddha and tells him, uh, uh, tells him that many angels and, and human beings are looking for the, the blessings. What, is, what are the true mangala, the true auspiciousness or, or lucky um, things, you know, blessings in the world? And the Buddha teaches this. So we memorize this and we'll, we'll recite it every day. We recite the Ratana Sutta, the Buddha's discourse on jewels, on the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And we recite the Karaniyameta Sutta. So these three are not just paritta, they're not just uh, protections. They're actually the teachings of the Buddha. And people will memorize more of them. They start with the Brahma Jala Sutta and the Dika Nikaya, and they go on and on and on. They will memorize the whole of the, the five Nikayas. Uh, so some people do this. Then there is the third basket, or the third group of the Buddha's teaching, which is the Abhidhamma. And the Abhidhamma is the Lord Buddha's perfection uh, of the, the teaching on wisdom. So it's the absolute, uh, complete teaching on wisdom. Um, and some people will memorize all of it. Again, for all of these three, it's, it's, it's not necessary to do this, but there are people who do in, in the Buddhist time, this was the common thing. You had to study. You had to learn what was the Buddhist teaching. They didn't have books that you could go back to, so they would actually memorize it. In the Abhidhamma, uh, it's, it's basically what you're going to realize from the meditation practice. You're going to realize that um, you know, once you refrain through morality and start to develop your mind, you're going to come to see reality for what it is. You'll come to see that inside of our, our body and mind and in our experience of reality, there are four things. There's the, the mind, there is the, <coughs> the mental states or the parts of the mind, the jetasika, and then there's the rupa, the, the physical matter, and then the fourth one is the, the freedom from all of this, the nibbana. So you come to realize that there are four realities, and you'll, you'll, you'll come to understand this through the meditation practice. You'll come to realize that there is no uh, being or no self, that every reality can be broken up into, into its composite pieces. So when you walk, you, normally we think this is the body walking, we think this is I am walking. When you practice meditation, you'll come to see that actually it's, it's a, f a sensation and the mind that's aware of the sensation. And the sensation itself and the mind that's aware of it, they arise at the same time and they cease. The, the mind is aware of, the, aware of it and judges it. 
and responds accordingly. When they cease, then a new experience arises. So you come to see that, that reality is broken up into pieces, you come to see that they're impermanent, that they're unsatisfying, and that they're, they have no essential uh, um, being or core, and that they only arise and cease. And as a result, you let go and realize freedom. When you realize that there is nothing worth clinging to, that there's nothing of any essential value, because everything is arising and ceasing. So this is the Buddha's teaching on, on wisdom. Now, as I said, the problem is that people spend um, their time studying and don't actually practice. So the Buddha said this is the first type of person. They might memorize all of the Buddha's teaching. They will spend their time studying the Vinaya, the Suttanta, the Abhidhamma, the Buddha's teaching on morality, concentration, and wisdom, but they won't practice it. They, they may study all of it, or may, they may study a little bit of it. And again, it's not important that you study all of it. In, in approaching the Buddha's teaching, even just the five precepts is enough morality to get you started on the path, and you can actually become free from suffering. You can come to the realization of wisdom just by keeping the five precepts. It, this is called the, the, the lower path. It's not perfect, so it's like having a, a vehicle that is not perfect, but it can get you where you're going. Some people will study all of the sutta, but some people maybe just study uh, enough to practice. So they study maybe the Satipatthana Sutta, and it's enough to, to understand the basics of the Buddhist teaching, and then go and practice. Some people study the whole of the Abhidhamma, some people study just the pieces of it, you know, the basics of it. If you just know about the five aggregates, that's enough to un understanding about wisdom. So the Buddha said there's this first person that does the studying, whether it be a lot or a little, but then they become negligent. They think that because of their study, they, they, they don't have anything left to do. They, they, they become conceited. And you see this a lot in the world. You'll see this especially in Buddhist circles. Just today I was reading about um, the, the, reading the biography of Tiloka, the first Western Buddhist bhikkhu, apparently the, the, the first, and he was from Germany. And the discussion about Buddhism in Germany went through some of this, that, that when people first learned about Buddhism, obviously they didn't have a teacher to show them how to meditate. So they spend all their time sitting in discussion groups and developing theories and, and you know, trying to incorporate the teachings into their daily life without actually sitting down and, and watching their breath or sitting down and, and, and watching the body and coming to, to, to understand in, in a more uh, fundamental or, or, or intensive fashion. And so this is the sort of thing that, that the Buddha said, this is, this is not a person who lives by the Dhamma, simply knowing simply having an intellectual understanding of the, of the Buddha's teaching is not enough. Or, or having learned, you know, having memorized or, or having gone through, having had a teacher or, or re read all the books. Um, I had a student once who had read the Majjhima Nikaya three times, the whole of the, the, the Majjhima Nikaya, 152 suttas. And this doesn't, this doesn't have any bearing really on your practice. You know, you can become enlightened by a few words. There's a story in the Buddha's time about this, this very issue, and it's a very well-known one, and it's something that we always try to keep in mind, and we use as an example of who not to be like, or, or an example of, 
of who to, who to be like. How, if a person is stuck in this state, what you should do to get out of it. And it's the story of Tucha Potila. Tucha Potila was a, a monk in the Buddha's time. His name was Potila, actually. And Potila means uh, this palm leaf. It's a book or a, a, a text, a manuscript. And he had memorized all of the Buddha's teachings. And not only in this Buddha, apparently it is said that he memorized the whole of the Tipitaka in seven, under seven different Buddhas in his, in his previous existences. And he, and he had done it also in this Buddha's dispensation, in, in the time of, of our historical Buddha, Gautama, Siddhartha Gautama. And as a result, he became quite conceited, and he thought, you know, I'm, here I am, totally proficient in the Buddha's teaching. If anyone asks me about anything, what did the Buddha teach on this and this and this, he could answer right away. And people practicing with him could, could, could understand it. If anyone wanted to know anything about the Buddha's teaching, they'd just ask him and, and he'd be able to tell them. He, was, uh, he felt like he was the complete potila, the complete manuscript. And so one day, you know, he was walking around with his students and he thought he'd go to pay respect to the Buddha figuring that when he went to see the Buddha, the Buddha would uh, certainly um, um, praise him and say, oh, what a, you know, here comes the great Bhotila, you know, the, the, the great teacher who knows all of the Buddha's teaching. And so he went to see the Buddha, and the Buddha said, oh, here comes Tucca Bhotila. And Tucca means empty. Tucca mean, means, means uh, blank. So he was calling, here comes empty book. Here comes, here comes empty book. Tucha Potila sits down. He says, oh, there's Tucha Potila sitting down. And then he pays respect to the Buddha. He says, oh, Tucha Potila is paying respect to me. And then he gets, Tucha Potila, he gets very upset. He gets up, he walks away. He, 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 he can't stand it. And he, he walks away. The Buddha says, oh, there goes Tucha Potila is leaving. And he's very, very upset and frustrated and, and, and actually... Um, Dis distressed by this. Because here he thought the Buddha would praise him, and the Buddha says, oh, here comes empty book. There goes the empty book. And so he goes and he sits down and he, and he thinks about, why is this? And then he actually starts to think about, well, what is the, you know, why is the Buddha saying this? And he thinks about the Buddha's teaching, and he realizes that it's true. You know, the Buddha never praised someone for simply learning, simply reading the, the Buddha's teaching, or, or in this case, you know, reciting and memorizing. You know, simply having studied the Buddha's teaching isn't enough. And he realized that he was, he was an empty book. He had no experience in the Buddha's teaching, no development. He had gained nothing from the Buddha's teaching. So he, he took this as a, as a sign that he had to do something. And he went to see, he heard about there was a meditation center in the forest, and he went right away to this meditation center. And this was a meditation center that had 30 arahants living in it. These 30 monks who had become enlightened through, through practicing the Buddhist teaching. So he knew, okay, these, these guys, they'll help me. So he went to the abbot, the, the chief monk, the monk who was the most senior, thinking he would take him as his teacher. But the senior abbot uh, knew right away that this monk was, was you know, full of himself. He, he, he was very conceited. And so he thought, you know, if I, teach, if I teach him, he'll become conceited that here he is. You know, all the other monks, you'll see them. Uh, I, I'm learning from the top monk. 
So he sends him to the vice abbot, or the, the monk who is second in line. And the monk who is second in line sends him to the third in line, to the fourth in line, all the way down. And none of them, they, they keep passing him on to the next guy. Until finally, the last monk passes him on to a seven-year-old novice, a Samanera, who is only seven years old, but who is also an Arahant. And the Samanera does a very interesting thing. He, he's, he's still very much a seven-year-old, so his method of teaching is not like an adult's way of teaching. And also he, he thinks of a very good, good way of helping this monk to overcome his conceit. He says to him, look, I'll teach you if you promise to do anything I tell you to do. Wh whatever I tell you to do, you have to promise to do it. And I've seen this used in, in modern days as well. It's a good technique to use. Um, because normally people think, you know, okay, yeah, no problem. I'll do whatever you say because you think he's a meditation teacher. He's not going to tell me to run into the water with my robes on or something. And in fact, that's exactly what the novice uh, had him do. Uh, he said, okay, I promise I'll do anything. Please just teach me. They said, okay, run into the water. So he starts taking off his robes. No, no, run in with your robes on. So he runs into the middle of the pond. And there he's treading water as best he can, or floundering around. He said, okay, come out now. Come quick, quick, quick. And so he comes out of the water. And go, go back down in. And he sends him back into the water. He does this two or three times until Tuchabotel is just at his wit's end. He doesn't know what to do. And then he's, he asks him, he says, if you have a, a termite mound and a lizard goes into the termite mound, how do you catch the lizard? And Tucha Botila says, he's there in the water and he's thinking and he says, well, you'd close up five of the holes and you watch the sixth hole. And when the, when the lizard comes out, you catch it. And, and the, the novice says, this is, this is what I want you to do. The six holes are the six senses, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. You close all the five, means you don't close your eyes, your ears, it means you close them with mindfulness. <coughs> you don't follow after them when you see something with the eye, you don't recognize it as this or that or the other thing, you simply know that it's seeing. Hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and you watch the mind. Wherever the mind goes, you follow the mind. You don't pay any attention to the other senses, you know, or, you know, listening to a sound and enjoying it or so on. It's only hearing, uh, smelling and so on until you can catch the mind and, and you see the mind coming out and then you will see the defilements in the mind, the kilesa, and then you can catch them and you can kill them. You can destroy the bad things that you have in your mind. And Tucha Bhotila, as he thought about this, he had given up all of his conceit and so he was able to do this, to watch the six senses and become free from suffering. And he became an arahant through this practice. So this is a story that, that just goes to show that even the most respected teacher in the Buddha's day um, ha had no basis to be called as one who lives by the Dhamma until he finally gave up his conceit uh, for his learning. People who have doctored degrees or, or, or whatever, they, they really have, no matter how much of the Buddha's teaching you know and, and intellectually understand, it's, it means nothing until you actually practice it. So this is the first person. The second type of person is one who, after they practice, they, um, they uh, sorry, after they study, then they, they, they memorize it or they chant it. And you see this a lot also in Buddhist countries. So people do a lot of chanting of the Buddha's teaching, chanting again and again and again, 
we'll do recitals of the, the you know, we, as I said, we recite every day the Ratana Sutta, the Mangala Sutta, the Karaniya Meta Sutta. And we do this, and we think that somehow <coughs> this is, is living by the Dhamma. We think that even lay people will do. I've, I've had meditators from Thailand and Sri Lanka telling me that they do many, uh, many, uh, many, they, they do a whole book of chanting. Some people do one hour, two hours of chanting. So when I ask them, do you do any meditation? They say, oh no, but, I, but every day I do chanting. And they think that somehow by, by chanting that you're going to live by the Dhamma, that it's somehow living by the Dhamma. I even had an argument with a woman. I said, well, you know, you do all this time chanting, can't you fit meditation in there? And she said, no, this is my way of doing it. This is, you know, according to the, the Buddha's teaching. I said, the Buddha never taught us to chant. Well, the Buddha said in this, in this sutta, he said, this is someone called the Satchaya Bahulo, one who is, is full of chanting or has, has much chanting. It's not someone who lives, no Vihari. No, this is not, <coughs> not one who lives by the Dhamma. Yeah, someone, someone who just does the chanting. A third type of person, after they've studied the Buddha's teaching, they study all of the parts of it or as much as they can, they then go and teach it to others. So just as we have the teaching here on the Buddhist channel, we have um, people will go very far out of their way to teach others. Uh, many people come to me and, and will teach me the, the Buddha's teaching, even if I haven't asked them to teach me. So. You, you will find this a lot, actually, that people are much more interested in teaching others than practicing on their own. And there was a story, another story in the Buddhist time of another monk. If you forgive me, I'll, I have, uh, th this story is also very interesting, so I'd like to share it for those of you who haven't heard it. This story goes, this monk had also done fairly intensive training in, in, in the, the scriptural, scriptural knowledge. So he, he had learned the, the Vinaya, the Sutta, the Abhidhamma. Except he started teaching people. So he taught people how to practice the Buddha's teaching without having practiced very much at all himself. But he knew the teaching and he knew how to, how to apply it, how to teach people. So he went out of his way to, to teach. To, and he, he gathered a, a very large following of students. And all of his students became enlightened. And some of them became Sotapanna, some of them became Sakitagami, some of them became... Uh, Anagami, some of them became Arahant. They all became enlightened beings of one level or another. And he was very proud of himself. He thought, well, you know, I am a great teacher. And everyone was very proud of him as well. Everyone thought he is a great teacher. And he was a great teacher. And this went on for some time until finally one of his students, who was an Anagami and had magical powers, had the powers, the ability to see into someone else's mind, thought one day, it was sitting in meditation and thought, here I am in this wonderful thing I've gained from my teacher. What, what level of, of attainment has my teacher gained? And he realized that his teacher hadn't gained any realization. His teacher was still an ordinary human being. And he, 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 he thought this is, this is something we can't let go by. Um, our teacher has done great things for us. We have to help him as well. And so he went to the teacher's room. And he, he, said to the, he said to the teacher, teacher, uh, the teacher was busy, he had people coming and going and, and was teaching and, and meeting with his students and so on. And the student said, teacher, um, could you please give, uh, I, I would like a lesson today. Can, can, um, I would like to have a lesson today. But what he really meant is, I want to give you a lesson. The teacher thought, of course, that he wanted a lesson from the teacher. 
And the teacher said, oh no, I'm too busy today. I'm too, I, I have no time for a lesson. And so the monk sat down in cross-legged cross, cross -legged position and he went into a, a state of meditative absorption. He floated up off the, off the floor and said to the, and floating in the air, he said to the, the, the teacher, he said, you don't have time even for yourself. How can you help us? How can you have time for other people when you yourself uh, haven't gained anything? You have taken no time for yourself. And he f flew out the window, you know, believe it or not. Um, and so this monk became very agitated by this, realizing that he himself had, had gained nothing from the practice. He, he had never taken the time to, to go into the forest and to, to, to practice his own meditation. He had always been too busy helping other people. So... He realized then and there that this had to stop, and this was this had visibly shaken him up, and, and he 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 just gave up everything at that time. He he said no more teaching. He gave all his students up to to you know you teach yourself, teach each other something. His, his senior students would teach the junior students. He said, "I'm going away," and he left. And he didn't tell anyone where he was going, and he went to live in the forest alone. No one knew where he was. And he did very strenuous meditation, walking back and forth and sitting meditation. And uh, until finally, his stress was building and he was, he was pushing himself so hard and he thought, I have to become enlightened, I have to become enlightened. And this, of course, was a hindrance in his meditation. It was actually hurting, hurting his practice, uh, hindering his development. And you find this as well with meditators. Is you, you're so keen to become enlightened here and now in the next you know, five days, ten days, that it becomes a hindrance because it's an attachment. You're not letting go. And of course, enlightenment is letting go. And so it got worse and worse until finally he, he blew up. He, he broke down and he, he started crying. He was, he, he was just at his wit's end and, and knew that if he went back, he would be a, a laughing stock and he would be such a disgrace. He couldn't go back and yet here he was getting nothing from the practice. So it seemed. In fact, when you break down, it's often the best thing for you. When you, when you give up, right? You say, I'm useless, this practice is, is uh, not working for me. It's actually the best thing in this case because it helps you realize, it helps you give up your conceit, realize that you're not the great. You can't force yourself, you don't have the power to become enlightened. You know, uh, enlightenment is, 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 as I said, when you give up. So, so this giving up of the meditations can actually be beneficial. Now what happened in this case was it turns out people didn't know where he was, but the angels knew where he was. And so the deva came, came down and were doing the walking meditation with him, were doing the sitting meditation with him, knew that he was a, a great teacher, so they were following everything he did. When he walked, they walked. When he sat, they sat. And one angel was you know, following him on that day. And when he sat down to cry, the angel appeared in front of him and, and started crying. And the teacher looked at him and looked at the angel and said, Why are you crying? Who are you? I'm an angel. Why, why are you crying? He said, well, I know you're the great teacher, so if, if crying is the way to enlightenment, I'll have to cry with you. And the teacher, he, he woke up and he said, this is, this is, this is not the way. And, and then he, he realized, you know, I have to, okay. He pulled himself together and continued on with the practice. And he was able to become enlightened as a result because he gave up. He, he realized that he was holding on, he was clinging. So this is another story about how it's easy to get caught up in teaching. It's much easier to teach someone else. This man, he was not enlightened and was yet was able to teach others how to become enlightened. This is the third type of person. The Buddha said, this type of person is not 
uh, one who lives by the Dhamma. The fourth type of person is one who, who thinks about the Dhamma, who intellectualizes it. And this I said in Germany the, in, in, in about a hundred years ago or over a hundred years ago, when they first started learning about Buddhism, they had all these, these groups. Um, and this, this you'll see around the world, actually. I've seen in Canada, you'll see it here in, in Sri Lanka, in Thailand. There are people who sit around in a round table and discuss the Buddha's teaching and have, give talks. And, and you know, it's not teaching, but it's, it's discussion and it's intellectualizing intellectual appreciation of the Buddha's teaching. You'll see this a lot. And this, the Buddha said, is also not um, one who lives by the Dhamma. Living by the Dhamma is not an intellectual appreciation. You appreciate the Eightfold Noble Path, and you hear about people who try to say they're going to live by the Eightfold Noble Path as best they can in their lives, and so on. Th this isn't... The, the Eightfold Noble Path is this one moment where your mind becomes perfect. If you don't practice meditation, you can't follow the Eightfold Noble Path. It's not possible. You can't have the, the, the Magga-sila, the Magga-samadhi, the Magga-panya. You have ordinary morality, ordinary concentration and ordinary wisdom. But you can't have the, 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 the ultimate and supreme wisdom because your mind, it's only an intellectual appreciation. You say, yes, yes, I don't want to kill. But deep down inside, you're angry. You're upset when you get a mosquito lands on you or so on. Um, you, 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 you have these things in your mind, and, and you can only suppress them for so long. There are meditators who can suppress the defilements for a long time. Uh, in Hinduism, in other religions, people who are devout Christians, devout Muslims, they can all suppress their defilements. But without the, the Buddha to teach, or without a practice of the Buddha's teaching, of a fully enlightened beings, teaching, where you actually are able to see reality as it arises and ceases, and see it for what it is. The, the, the intellectual appreciation and, and do even devotion to the Buddha's teaching, no matter if you keep the five precepts your whole life, the Buddha did this for many years as a bodhisattva, many lifetimes as a bodhisattva, and still wasn't able to become enlightened. So to think that it's enough simply to live by the teaching on, on a day-to-day -day basis and, and uh, you know, not get too angry, not get too greedy and try to live according to the Dhamma. It's not actually living by the Dhamma. The Buddha said it. Even an intellectual appreciation of the Buddha's teaching. No Vihari, this is not one who lives by the Dhamma. So these are four types of people. The fifth type of person, the Buddha said, here is a person who studies the Buddha's teaching. And please take note that the, even this person has studied the Buddha's teaching. A person who has never studied, who has never learned anything about the Buddha's teaching, who, who maybe sees the Buddha and hears about the Buddha's enlightenment and, and decides to meditate, or, or learns, doesn't understand the core of the Buddha's teaching, maybe learns morality, or, or maybe learns a little bit about the Eightfold Noble Path, but not about how to practice, uh, will... Is, is, not consider, is also not considered one who lives by the Dhamma because they don't know the Dhamma. They don't know what is the teaching of the Buddha. But this person, once they study it, they, they do something that is, that is special. And, and there are four things that they do that the other people don't do. And this is, this is from the Pali, so I want to explain these, these things. The characteristics of someone who is one who lives by the Dhamma. The first phrase in the Pali is, uh, they don't let the days go by. They don't let time go by. They don't waste time. 
this this is something that this is a phrase that we should always keep in mind. Not divasang atinamiti. They don't waste time. They don't let the days go by. So we can always ask ourselves: We've studied, and we maybe intend to practice, but are we letting the days go by? Are we wasting our time doing other things, getting involved in 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 uh, worldly things, or getting involved in in uh, in business of this the the monastery or so on, or, or in in our daily lives? Are, are we wasting our time in other things when we could be meditating, when we could be practicing? One who lives by the Dhamma doesn't do this. They don't waste time. They practice here and now. The Buddha said, Don't let the moment pass you by. And this they don't do. The second one, This means they don't give up. They don't abandon. They don't discard the... Um, uh, seclusion or a secluded place. Meaning they have a place to meditate. They 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 stay there. They stay to themselves. Narinchati. They they don't leave it. They stay put in a place. Maybe it's a forest. Maybe it's a a, a tree, foot of a tree. You know. Uh, but in modern times, it's probably a, a their room, a kuti. So if it's a kuti in the jungle, or it's their bedroom or it's some shrine room that they have, a, a meditation room in their house or wherever. Any place that is empty, the Buddha says sunyakara, a place that is empty, that has, has no people in it, no one that's going to come and bother you and, and take you away from meditation. Because ordinary people, they might have these places, but they, they don't spend their time there. They spend all of their time, you know, they'd be in a quiet place like this, and then they start thinking about other people and they want to go and talk to people, they want to go and read books or they want to go and eat or they want to go and drink or, or so on. They, they go, want to go and waste their time. It's very important as meditators and as Buddhists that we appreciate our solitude. We appreciate our time alone. When we have this time alone in our rooms, in our, in our uh, solitary place, that we take the time. We don't see it as kind of a difficult place to be and wishing we were somewhere else and looking at the door and and and, and going running out to find people to find things that are exciting when you have this quiet place most people will say this is boring nothing to do and they go and find something to do they don't realize that now is the opportunity that it's very difficult often to find this opportunity where you're alone where you have the op the place and the, the time to meditate to practice the buddha's teaching so this person, uh, a person who lives by the Dhamma, will know this, will see the benefits of seclusion. Seclusion is very important in the Buddhist teaching, even just bodily seclusion, gaya viveka. Separating, taking your body out of society, away from the group, not trying to find people to talk with, to socialize with, taking your time to, to be alone. This is the second thing that they do. The third thing that they do is... Uh, According to the Pali, Anuyunjati Ajatang Jito Samatang. They develop themselves in uh, concentration, internal composure. And the meaning here is they practice Samatha They practice to calm the mind, to tranquilize the mind. They, they develop internal composure. And many people have external composure. Here the Buddha is is referring to internal composure. Many people, from the outside, they look very peaceful, very calm, but their minds are running very quickly. You know, if you look at children sometimes, they can look very peaceful, 
very calm, but you don't know what's going on in their mind. You know, the people are, are, are not, um, not like other animals. Animals, you can look at them and you can tell what's in their mind. But with humans, it's very difficult. You know, humans can be doing one thing, you know, their actions can say one thing, their speech can say another, and their mind can say another. So here we're trying to be composed internally. It doesn't matter what we look like outside. It's what's going on inside of our minds. When we practice meditation, as I have explained, watching the rising and the falling of the stomach, when you watch the movements of the feet, when you watch the pain or the happy feelings, when you watch your thoughts, you say to yourself, thinking, thinking, or when you watch your emotions, liking, disliking, or so on, any states that arise, your mind becomes composed. You, you, you become internally composed. Your mind quiets down. And this is, a very, this is the third uh, important quality of one who lives by the Dhamma. The Buddha said a person who does even just this can, can be considered to be living by the Dhamma when they're quieting their mind, focusing their mind on reality. Even if they haven't yet gained uh, true wisdom, they're still practicing to develop wisdom because this concentration, concentration on our body and on our mind, on the experience of reality around us, when we focus our minds and quiet it down uh, and, and focus it on a single object, this is considered to be living by the Dhamma. Number three, the fourth and final, and of course the most important um, quality of one who lives by the Dhamma, is uttarincha uh, sapanyaya atang pajanadi. Uttarincha, uttaring means higher. Uh, they come to see the higher meaning of the panya, of the wisdom uh, that they've gained. They come, bhajanati, they come to see clearly the meaning of the wisdom of the teachings of the Buddha. So panya here is, is, is only the, the scriptural teachings, but it's, it's the wisdom of the Buddha. And they come to realize the uttaring atang, the, the higher meaning, you know, the real meaning. And this is something that's very difficult to understand because you think you understand it. Anichang. We think we understand impermanence. The Buddha's teaching on impermanence. We think we understand it. You know, now I'm, I'm 31 years old and, and, you know, before I was only a child, but that's changed. And then uh, when I get old, uh, I'll change again and then I'll die. Impermanence. I understand it. Everything is impermanent. Right? We think we understand it. This is wisdom. But it's not our wisdom. It's the wisdom that someone else has given to us. They told us about impermanence. We only understand it intellectually. The Buddha's understanding of impermanence was the higher meaning. The higher meaning is that every experience arises and ceases. This is the meaning of anichang, dukang, and anatta. Anichang, it's impermanent. Dukang is suffering. It means not that it's painful, but that it's not sukang, it's not happiness. You know, we normally we look at things, we see something beautiful, we think that is happiness. That's going to make me happy. We hear some beautiful sound, we say, this is making me happy. Tastes, smells, feelings, thoughts. We think these things are, are bringing us happiness. No matter what intellectual appreciation we have of the Buddha's teaching, if we haven't practiced meditation, we cling to these things, thinking that they are going to bring us happiness, thinking that this happiness is real. In fact, it's not. And, and that's why we suffer. We, we become bored, we become agitated, we become upset. Um, we're discontent at all times. 
because of our addictions, because of our inability to see the, the impermanence, the impermanent nature of all things, that it's changing all the time, that nothing can actually uh, satisfy us. And anatta, anatta is the most difficult. I think intellectually it's very difficult to understand. And this is why, as I said, intellectual understanding is not the way to approach the Buddha's teaching. When one practices meditation, one will see that the phenomena that arise and cease are doing so based on cause and effect. They're not according to our will, our wish, even our stomach rising and falling will frustrate us again and again and again until we let go, until we realize that we can't control it. We can't force our minds to be with the rising and falling. We can't force the stomach to rise and fall in a, in a, um, in a smooth and constant manner. And this is the wisdom that we realize until finally our minds let go. And when the mind lets go, it comes inside. It stops leaping out to the sight, the sound, the smell, the taste, the feelings, and the thoughts. And this is release. The mind is released into what we call Nibbana or Nirvana. So this is what it means to live by the Buddha's teaching, to live by the Dhamma. And I think this is a very important teaching, one that uh, can never be, be explained too, too often something that we should all bear in mind as Buddhists, that we're not just living um, li living according, as they say in Thailand, we're Buddhist by our identity card. Because in Thailand, on the, on the, the, uh, the identity card that every person has to carry, uh, it says what religion you are. So they joke that there are two types of Buddhists. There are the Buddhists who practice and the Buddhists on their card. And we should not be this, because we, B Buddhism, according, I was reading by Vyadasi Thero, he said, uh, the, the great um, Buddha, Buddhist scholar from Sri Lanka, he said, Buddhism is not, the Dhamma of the Buddha is not something that you can possess like a national treasure. And yet we see this. We see that in Buddhist countries, they will think of it as a national treasure, that Buddhism is ours. And until you've actually practiced, Buddhism is not yours. People in the West are the same. People in the West feel like they've liberated the Dhamma from the culture of, of, of the East. You know? So Buddhism is now theirs, and they possess it. And it can become very uh, uh, dangerous. It's easy to become conceited about this. And you start to think that your intellectual appreciation and ability to teach and ability to discuss and ability to analyze everything based on the Dhamma is making you, makes you one who lives by the Dhamma, when in fact it's not. If you're not incorporating these five things, the, um, the, the constant practice every day, the um, seclusion, you know, the, the, the keeping yourself away from the group or taking the time away from the group to meditate, and then the actual meditation where you quiet the mind and the final realization. If you aren't getting this understanding that is constant, that is uh, uh, ultimate, or that is here and now, based on the moment-to-moment -moment experience of reality, then you can't be said to be one who lives by the Dhamma. So, this is the Buddha's teaching, something that I thought I would pass along, something that I think is of use to us as Buddhists. And I would like to uh, encourage everyone to take this as a reminder that we should all uh, make haste now that we have the chance to be born in a time when the Buddha's teaching still exists to actually practice and to develop our own minds and our own selves to 
realize the truth of the Buddha's teaching and become free from suffering for ourselves. Thank you for tuning in, and I wish you all peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering.